I wonder if you all remember, and our kids, you kids probably are too young to remember this. In fact, most of you are too young to remember this. But maybe you've seen one lying around. Do you all remember the magic eye books? The magic eye books. Let me refresh your memory. The first one came out in North America in 1993, and it was followed by two sequels that together spent 73 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. But they weren't books like the traditional kind of New York Times bestseller list book. They were simply a collection of pictures. They were a collection of images. More precisely, they were called random dot autostereograms. Random dot autostereograms. And they were these pictures that when you stare at them, or for, well, excuse me, when you first glance at them, they simply look like a, like a beautiful pattern. But then as you stare at them, as you focus, at least for me, I kind of let my eyes almost unfocus, then suddenly what happens is the illusion of depth is given, and this 3D image pops out. Remember those books? They were called the Magic Eye Books. But here's the thing. These books that came out, to be able to see the image, it didn't happen right away. And apparently for some people, they never could get to the point where they could see this image. And it was incredibly frustrating for a lot of people. They, they stare and they stare. They see the beauty of the patterns there and all the colors, but they just can't see the image that's supposed to be there that everybody else seems to see. Those books came to my mind this week as I was studying because it seems to me in this way, audio stereograms can be a picture of spiritual life. And particularly when we come to this passage this morning, another incredible story, not just about Jesus, but an incredible story that involves his disciples on the sea We might say that audio stereograms and that struggle to see the image is a picture of the disciples. They see, but they don't see. Let me explain what I mean. By grace, I want us to see three things, really see three things surrounding this miracle this morning. That Jesus might be glorified. And that you might be moved to a deeper love and appreciation for who your Savior is and what he has done for you. So the first truth is this. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. Jesus came to do the will of his heavenly Father. You see, what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that this story is more than just another miracle moment in the life of Jesus. It's more than just, whoa, look again what Jesus can do. And there are some things in the passage that tip us off that there's much more here than just, that was awesome. Even though, that was awesome. As we read through the passage today, or as I read through the passage today, I suspect there were some words 
at least I hope, that there were some words or there were some phrases that you heard as I was reading. They kind of cocked your head like, that's weird. Like, that doesn't sound right. At least that's the way it was with me when I read this passage. It begins with verse 45 in the first three words. Immediately, that's a word we hear a lot from Mark. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Doesn't that strike you as odd? He made his disciples get into the boat. Now, why would Mark phrase it that way? Well, remember what just happened. We talked a little bit about it last week. For those of you who weren't here, Jesus had fed thousands of people in a miraculous way beside the lake. And this was after the people had chased him around the lake so they could intercept him when he came to the shore. And why were they chasing him? Why were they following him? Because they were ready for a revolution. They are trying to start an uprising, and they want Jesus at the helm of that uprising. They've long sat under Roman rule, and now Jesus is here. He's doing awesome things. He is our guy. Let's march on to Rome. And Jesus says, no, it's not the time, and that's not the kind of kingdom that I came to bring. And so what Jesus is doing here at the very beginning of this passage is he's hustling his disciples away from this madness. He's getting them away from the groupthink, from the crowd and the momentum of the crowd that is ready to crown Jesus king. He doesn't want his disciples to get caught up. And so he gets them in a boat and he sends them off and Jesus returns to the crowd to diffuse the situation, to disperse and dismiss them. That's what's going on. And then after that, what does Jesus do? He heads up to the mountain. In verse 30, 46, he goes up on a mountain to pray. Now Jesus, as you might imagine, Jesus prayed a lot, right? Jesus prayed a lot. I mean, the eternal communion with the Father had no doubt been changed by this event called the Incarnation. Jesus is separated from his Father in some way. In the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus often needed his Father's voice. He needed the fellowship of the Trinity, which he had existed for all eternity. But in Mark's Gospel, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in Mark's Gospel, we almost never hear about Jesus praying. Only three times in the whole book, Does Mark tell us about Jesus praying? And those three instances, when Jesus pulls away from the Father, are very, very significant. And they're significant because each withdrawal of Jesus to silence and to communion and fellowship with his Father involves the temptation to not carry out his mission. Let's look briefly. The first instance where Jesus is talked about 
praying is Mark chapter 1, verse 35. We already looked at it weeks and weeks and months ago. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed. He went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, what's happening in Jesus' life? Well, this is very early in his ministry. Things have just started picking up speed. Jesus is healing. He has chosen his disciples. His fame is spreading, and Jesus has to disengage. He has to get away from it all. And his disciples are frustrated because they can't find him. And they come to him saying in verse 38, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Where are you? And what does Jesus say? He says, we've got to get out of here. Essentially, he says, we've got to move on. That's the first instance. The next one's here. We just talked about it. They want to make him king, thousands of them. He's got to get away. He's got to regroup. And then the final one, where Mark tells us that Jesus withdraws to pray is in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. The Garden of Gethsemane. The place where Jesus wrestles with the Father to the point of sweating blood at the reality of what is coming his way. See, what I want you to see is the Father's path for the Son of God is a hard path. It's one of loneliness. It's one of impending abandonment. It's one of suffering, not just when his followers tuck their tails and flee, but when his own father crushes him on a cross. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And yet all throughout Jesus' life, the alternative is right there. It's right there. Immediate glory fueled by this popular swell. It's like Jesus is right back in the wilderness with Satan. Remember when Satan, the evil one, offers him all the authority of the kingdoms in exchange, just bow to me, Jesus, and this, bam, this is yours. And we think, well, that was just real easy. Jesus, bam, just spouted off scripture. Jesus was... A man. This is hard. This ministry is hard. You don't think the thousands of screaming people crying out for him to be king right now, you don't think that's hard? That's a temptation? And yet here, Mark gives us this this glimpse of the inner life and the humanity of our Savior The God-man who really had to wrestle, who had to regroup, who had to refocus at what the world was offering to him. And here's the beautiful thing. He obeyed. He obeyed. He came to do the Father's will and he resolutely remained on that path. His eyes were on the glory of the Father and on those, you and me, those whom the Father had given him. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. I think that's the first thing Mark is showing us here. And yes, there's takeaways from this. We could think about our own lives. We could follow Jesus' lead of, of where we go when temptation arises. That's a perfectly legitimate application of this passage. 
When the pressure cooker is on, where do we run? How do we handle? But more than anything, Mark wants to show us, he wants us to rejoice in the obedience of our Savior. Redemption is ours because of the steadfast love and obedience of the Son. That's the first truth. But another amazing thing that we see in Jesus, that in in the midst of his own struggle on the mountain, a real struggle, what does Jesus do? Well, he sees in the distance the struggle of someone else. He sees in the distance the struggle of his disciples. And he responds. And that's the second truth I want you to see is that Jesus is the glory of God come to earth. Jesus is the glory of God come to earth. Now let me explain what I mean by that. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is wrestling with the Father in prayer. The Romans divided the night into four watches, six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, and three to six. This is the fourth watch of the night, so we're somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus is wrestling with temptation. He's finding comfort in the presence of his Father. Meanwhile, his disciples are languishing at sea. It's not a storm like they saw before. After all, Jesus is on the mountain and he can see them by the light of the moon. But there is some crazy wind, some gale force wind whipping down on the Sea of Galilee. And they're not getting anywhere. And remember, this comes on the heels of the disciples being absolutely exhausted. They had returned from all these regions. Jesus had told them to get away. Their boat had been intercepted by the thousands, right? So the disciples are tired. And they're languishing, the waves lapping against the boat. And these guys, I mean, you got to think about the humanity of these fishermen. They're thinking, really? Like, didn't Jesus put us in this boat? And here we are again on the middle of the Sea of Galilee, struggling, turmoil on the chaos of the water. They're saying, I'm not getting in this boat again unless Jesus is here and unless Jesus is awake. But Jesus, up on the mountain, Jesus is concerned. He's the good shepherd. His sheep are struggling. And so Jesus comes to them. He comes to them. Now now think about this. He could have silenced the wind from the shore. He could have stilled the sea from where he was on the mountain. But he comes to them. And he doesn't come swimming. He doesn't come in a rescue vessel. He comes as a wave walker. It's amazing. It's incredible. And the disciples, with all their sailor stories, they are totally freaked out and they think it's a ghost. And then we read this in verse 48 He meant to pass by them. Huh? He meant to pass by them? Like Jesus was out for an evening stroll, just wanted to pass by and wave to the boat as he was walking on by. Or he's planning on rescuing them, but he wanted to kind of sneak up on them. Pass by, come around the side, flank them. 
No. You've got to see the richness of what Mark is telling us here. Jesus is revealing himself as God. Jesus is revealing himself as the glory of God come to earth. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Moses Moses needs reassurance of Yahweh's presence as he has been called to serve Yahweh. And so he asks in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 33, he says this, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Skipping down to verse 20 in Exodus 33. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Isolated incident, similar wording. 1 Kings 19, the Lord comes to Elijah. And we read in 1 Kings 19, 11, the Lord passed by. Now these passages in Exodus and in 1 Kings, they were written in Hebrew. The passage this morning was written in Greek, so it's a different language, different words, but the same wording is being used because the same picture is being painted. The living God, the glorious one, has come near in the person of Jesus. This is the one who Job spoke about in Job 9.8. He alone, Job says, he alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And then in Job 11 verse, or excuse me, Job 9 verse 11, he says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. You see, the disciples see, they see the Lord here, but they don't know what to make of him. Jesus is not ignoring them. He is revealing himself, and they're missing it. And so Jesus identifies himself, and he says in verse 50, take heart, it is I. Now John, the gospel writer John, tells us that Jesus, while he was on earth, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, but here he simply says, ego ami in Greek, I am. Am. It is I. As one commentator wrote, Jesus is identifying himself in the linguistic echo of the divine name. We've gone to those passages in Exodus, and we could return to Exodus 3, where the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob identifies himself to Moses as who? I am. See, Jesus is the glory of God come to earth. 
Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus is proclaiming it in word picture before his disciples and before us today. But as we come to the last truth, all this richness that we see, the last truth is a bit depressing in a sense. The disciples have missed all this. They had all the information, all the revelation they needed, and yet it says in verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. I mean, they missed that they were amazed by the bread and the fishes and the thousands being fed. They were amazed by it, but they missed the point of it. I mean, think of all that they have seen. Think of all that they have witnessed. How much evidence do they need? I mean, we didn't read the next section, but the the bottom section is just a summary statement of all that Jesus does in Galilee, all of his healing ministry. It's become so commonplace. It's almost an afterword that Mark gives in verses 53 to the end of the chapter. And yet for the disciples, for each, for for them, for each incident, it seems to be an isolated incident. They're not seeing this larger story and the fact that the sovereign Lord of the universe, the God of Israel, the suffering servant is in their midst. And that's why the last truth is so important. It's this. We need grace to not miss the glory of Jesus. We need grace to not miss the glory of Jesus. I began this sermon talking about audio stereograms, and here's where the illustration breaks down. You see, everyone can eventually see, at least they're supposed to be able to see, the 3D images. It just takes some technique, it takes some effort, it takes some time. But even with all the disciples have seen, unless Jesus helps them, they won't understand. They won't get it. And that's why the entire focus of this passage is on the glory of God revealed in Jesus. Even Peter, the one who dictated this account to Mark, who wrote it down, and we've talked about that several times, Peter leaves himself out of this story. You might remember, those of you who know the scriptures well, that in Matthew's account, Peter is a part of this story. He jumps out of the boat. He walks towards Jesus. Peter leaves himself out almost to just say, no, this is about Jesus. This is about the glory of God. The disciples had front row seats, and they don't see it. Mark reminds us that faith is more than just knowing facts or even observing awesome things. No, faith to see Jesus as he truly is, is a gift. Faith to keep our eyes on him when the wind is howling around us is a gift. And so when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God in Matthew chapter 16, what does Jesus say to Peter? Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. He gets all the glory. Jesus, the glory of God, come to earth, gets all the glory. So what now? Well, just four takeaways, four applications of this beautiful portrait of our Savior, this beautiful reminder of the gospel and of the story God's writing. First of all, marvel at the story. I mean, marvel at the story that God is writing over thousands of years, over generations upon generations. Number two, rejoice in the work of Jesus. Rejoice in the work of Jesus and his love for you. The same Jesus who saw his disciples' distress is yours. He sees your distress. You have his spirit. And he offers you that same calming presence that he offers the disciples as he got into the boat with them. And give thanks. Give thanks because he's not yours. Jesus is not yours because of anything you've done. Jesus is yours because he's given you faith to see him. You stare all day. All your life, you'd stare at that image and you'd never really see him unless he gave you eyes to see. And then lastly, pray. Pray for grace to fix your eyes on Jesus. It's a reminder of our need for grace. We need his presence. We need his power. We need his love more than anything. Let's pray that we see it, that we don't miss it. Praise God, Jesus came to do the will of his Father, and he obeyed perfectly. He is the glory of God come to earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your servants. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Peter, of Mark, of all the disciples who followed you with brokenness with imperfection, with weakness, as we follow you with the same. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us faith, give us eyes, give us grace to see anew the glory of our Savior, to feel anew the love of Christ for us and the presence of his Spirit in our lives. Oh, Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.